Amen. Yeah, God is still calling people to carry on his ministry and mission. In the Bible, there are many call stories. And if you've ever read them, you will know that frequently, God has to overcome human reluctance and resistance to that call. Now, from a human point of view, you know, reluctance to accept a God-sized assignment, you know, is probably a very wise and natural thing to do. Even the Apostle Paul, he said, who is equal to such a task? But as we have seen in Moses, feelings of inadequacy are one thing. Downright unwillingness is quite another. Jonah is probably the most famous, totally unwilling to follow God's story, right? Now, I just want to pick up, where was Moses when we last left him? Uh, just on the map, you can see first that uh, the Israelites were in the area of Goshen. That's where Moses was before he had to flee all the way, and he went far away into the land of Midian. Uh, found a lovely girl there, got married to Zipporah, had a child. And then he'd been there for a long time, 40 years. And then one day he had a very long commute to work. Uh, had to find pasture land. The next slide. And uh, he went to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, which will become very significant, but at that, at that time it was not. And uh, last week, David Lee drew us, you know, he drew us into the story, a surprising and dramatic encounter that Moses had with God. And when God appeared to Moses, it wasn't in a sacred space, into a sacred temple. No, it was, you know, out in the wilderness. And Moses wasn't asking for God to appear. I thought, you know, Moses may have expected maybe God to appear when Moses was living as a prince in Egypt. After all, I think he had probably been told by his mother and family, Moses, you are special. God saved you from birth. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And then it all went sideways. For the last 40 years, he had been a wandering fugitive shepherding in Midian, tending the flock, not his own even, but that of his father-in-law, Jethro. Moses probably thought he'd never see his people in Egypt again. But things changed rather unexpectedly. As I said, the day began with a long commute, longer than usual to find grazing for the flock. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, an otherwise very ordinary bush, and yet God's presence had made the ordinary suddenly very extraordinary. And the next thing Moses knew, he was being called to God work. It was a job offer he never asked for, and one so far beyond his abilities, the obstacles seemed insurmountable. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? But it wasn't about who he was any more than it was about the bush from which the voice of God was speaking to him. Likewise, it was, and it would be God's presence that would make all the difference in the world to him. As for who this God was that appeared to a Gershom, a foreigner like him, and cared enough about his oppressed people to personally deliver them from Pharaoh, well, there could no longer be any doubt. He was indeed the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one who always keeps his promises. But for every question the Lord answered, Moses, 
Moses posed another to take its place, as we shall see. Let's read, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Then we're going to read the uh, first 17 verses. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, Hmm, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. The Lord threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in the cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Well, despite God's personal assurance and empowering presence in chapter 3, Moses has other pressing concerns. Despite God having already told him back in 3 verse 18 that the, the elders of Israel will listen to you, Moses finds that awfully hard to believe. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord has not appeared to you? I think we've probably all had and raised some of our own what-if questions with God. You know, God maybe speaks to us in some way or nudges us, maybe in coming to a step of faith, and we wonder, yeah, but what if my family doesn't support me? What if they resist my wanting to get baptized or to go into ministry or whatever it may be? Well, the exchange that follows shows us something about the nature of God's relationship, relationship with Moses. As commentator Terence Fretheim notes, God does not adopt a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward what he has said. God is clearly the authority, but God's approach to Moses within relationship is non-authoritarian in nature. 
For example, in verses 8 to 9, God accommodates himself to Moses using Moses' own if language. If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs, then a third will be given. God, you see, makes sure that Moses is equipped to respond to concerns that he has and that others will raise. Now, let's explore the signs that Moses is given. Because as Old Testament professors uh, Matthews, Chavez, and Walton point out, the three signs that God gave to Moses each had symbolic significance. For example, the rod, the staff or rod, was the symbol of authority in Egypt. And Pharaoh, if you've uh, seen King Tut, uh, the serpent figure, the, the mask is made to look like the hood of the serpent, and if you can put that slide up. And you can see in, on the top also is a serpent head. And it featured prominently on the crown. And the first sign then suggests that Pharaoh and his authority, he claims to have this power, and yet Moses at first, he's running away from it, but God says, no, take it, reach out, grab that staff again, and he will have authority over that serpent. And he does. And so he's saying, God is saying, he's under my power. And the second sign is leprosy. Or it's a broader term in Hebrew for some kind of uh, terrible skin disease. And when God inflict, inflicts someone with this kind of disease in the Bible, it is always to humble them because they have pridefully appointed themselves to a divine authority. So later on it will be with Miriam she is struck because she is trying to claim that position that Moses has. Or the, some of the kings later on. It's a warning sign. A sign that God has power to inflict and also to heal even the worst of diseases. And the third sign, the turning to water to blood, shows that God has control over the lifeblood of Egypt, the Nile. It also anticipates the plagues that God will send on the Egyptians for having used that life-giving Nile to kill God's children. They've contaminated it with his blood. Now, so these are not, you know, gimmicks or magic tricks, but they are powerful and meaningful signs. Well, despite having addressed three already of Moses' objections, two back in chapter 3 and another one already in chapter 4, Moses has another one. You know, not only who am I, who are you, and what if they don't listen, Moses' third or fourth objection is his obvious and long-standing lack of eloquence. Now, it is perhaps ironic that all of Moses' previous responses, especially in Hebrew, they're short and gruff. And yet this one, suddenly Moses becomes rather quite eloquent in Hebrew, okay? In an effort to convince God of his lack of eloquence, <laughs> you know. But it is not any verbal eloquence that will help convince the people, and it is not a lack of it that will hinder it. As the creator himself, God, he is intimately aware of all human abilities and limitations. He certainly knows how to help Moses say what needs to be said. Now go. I myself will help you speak and teach you what to say. Basically, Moses, it's not that complicated for me. 
I'm the maker. I'm the creator of this. I can handle it. And with the promise of such perfect and complete divine assistance, Moses now has been rendered defenseless. But that doesn't mean he's ready and willing to go. No, the sincerity of the previous objections, I think, are suddenly called into question with his final one in verse 13. Pardon your servant, Lord. Oh, please send someone else. Oh, my. How often have we said that? To Moses' emotional plea, God also responds with emotion, that of anger and frustration. And I wonder, who can blame him? And yet God's anger does not express itself with a violent outburst. But with one more accommodation. God is not willing to bypass Moses, but he is willing to grant him an assistant, a partner, his own older brother Aaron. And indeed, the all-knowing God has already made sure that Aaron, oh yeah, he's on his way. I know it's been a long time since you've seen him. 40 years. I couldn't help but think of, I remember my grandmother. She had left Russia in the 1920s as a refugee. She had to leave some of her family behind, including her younger sister. Her younger sister, they would write sometimes, but never sure if the, the communist government was reading their letters. And then her sister got to move to East Germany, and then Suddenly, her sister was allowed to come out and they got to visit. They got to meet in person after over 40 years. Wow. I, I thought of that one here. And, and Aaron, he is going to be delighted to see you. And having explained, God does explain then how the partnership will work. It will be like he is your prophet and like you are God. It's what it's going to look like to Pharaoh and to the people. He's going to deliver your word. This is how it's going to work. Just like Moses, you're my mouthpiece and I'm the real God. And God commands Moses to take up the staff. After this, it's often going to be called the staff of God. Okay? And it's because God, so that he can carry out God's mission. And Moses does. Let's read verses 18 to to the end of the chapter. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who want to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son." At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. 
So we met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. (laughs) And when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Well, here we see Moses is finally ready to head off to Egypt and leave behind his life in Midian. And yet he tells his father-in-law about his plan, when he tells his father-in-law about his plan to return to Egypt, he leaves out the main reason he is going. I wonder why. Is Moses concerned about how this mission will sound and how his father-in-law will react? I was reminded when I moved to BC in 1988 at the age of 22, I didn't tell my parents every reason why I was going. I think they had a hint that this uh, girl that I had gotten to know in Bible college, and uh, she happened to live out into the BC, was probably the reason, but you know, I tried to keep my cards close to my chest, as I think Moses did. And perhaps he did wonder how many of the people had actually survived living under the oppression that he had seen. I mean, this is 40 years of that. It would have been important also, I think, to have his father-in-law's support and blessing, especially since this was a whole family venture. They all packed up together and went. But by taking the staff of God in his hand, it is clear that the support that matters most to him is God's. You know, it used to be just an ordinary shepherd's staff, but like Moses, the ordinary shepherd, it is now being put to new use. In God's hands, this ordinary staff and this ordinary servant become extraordinary. God, in verses 21 to 23, goes over again with Moses what he's supposed to do when he gets to Egypt. See that you perform all before Pharaoh all the wonders that I gave you the power to do. That's when the rubber is really going to hit the road. He also reminds him that Pharaoh, oh yeah, he's not going to let my people go. But notice how it is worded. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now it's common and easy to hear this statement as a theological problem. Where's Pharaoh's free will in this? We will get to that another day. But I don't want us to miss the point here that God will work through both Moses' obedience and Pharaoh's disobedience. That is, even Pharaoh's hard-heartedness will not and cannot stop God's plan. Indeed, it will actually be worked into God's ultimate plan and victory. And I think this way, this hardness of the heart, it was actually in David Lee's, uh, you know, Bible overview that he showed us this picture. You've ever seen some of the Egyptian hieroglyphics or or artwork? There's this balance, this scale. And on the one side, I didn't realize, is a feather. And on the other side is a heart. And in the weighing of the heart ceremony, if the heart was heavier than the feather, that is not a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> that means you were unjust, you, didn't, you were arrogant, uh, 
And so I think there is something going on here that God is, is saying, your heart is being hardened. You're being judged. You are storing up judgment for yourself with this. Well, in verses 22 to 23, God makes it clear what the core issue and contest are. Pharaoh, you see, has tried to claim ownership and authority over God's people, over God's firstborn son. And God is not going to tolerate such arrogance and oppression of his precious people. And this is good news for the oppressed, is it not? And what follows in verse 24 and following are two then momentous encounters, one with God and one with Aaron and the elders of Israel. Now the first one, in verses 24 to 26. As readers, we are unprepared for, I think, and mystified by this first encounter. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Hello? Does anyone have a problem with that? I mean, God seemed to have a problem with Moses, and I think most readers have a problem here with God. Why would the Lord try to kill the very person he has taken such great effort to preserve and to prepare and call for ministry? And how does Zipporah, his wife, know what to do in this crisis? What was, was, why was it so essential for their son Gershom to be circumcised? And commentators have puzzled long and hard over this passage and proposed many theories and interpretations. But we'll try to sort them in a simple way, I guess. Who first is under attack is actually uncertain in Hebrew because it just says, tried to kill him. Who's him? And it would seem most probable that Moses, rather than his son, is the one under attack because his son is then becomes the, object, or the subject in, in later verses. And what is the issue? Well, since Zipporah circumcised their child and the effect of her action was that the Lord left him alone, obviously being uncircumcised seems to be the problem and being circumcised is the solution. But what is the purpose of this story and especially here? And as is often the case in the book of Exodus, what happens to Moses prefigures or, or foreshadows what will happen to Israel. You see, the blood of the covenant that here saves Moses prefigures, foreshadows the blood of the covenant in Passover that will save Israel. And God's servants, Moses and Israel, they need to clearly declare who they belong to, who they are standing with. And Moses, you see, had neglected to carry out to keep the covenant of circumcision that God had made with Abraham. Genesis 17, if you can just put that slide up. In Genesis chapter 17, God had made this covenant with Abraham. And he had said, your descendants need to keep this for generations to come. And if you don't, you will be cut off from the people. And I think this probably is what giving us insight here. Just like if you don't put the blood over the doorposts, from the sacrificial lamb when it comes time for that plague. You will not have declared yourself with me, but with Pharaoh. And here, Moses, when you are now crossing back towards on my mission, you need to declare yourself outright that you are part of the covenant people of God. 
And in the New Testament, this becomes baptism, becomes the sign that we have identified fully with Jesus and his work for us. And so only when Moses is spiritually dedicated to God is he ready to represent God before Pharaoh and carry out his mission. Well, the second momentous meeting is Aaron and the elders. It's interesting to me, the chapter, it began with Moses worrying whether they would listen to him. And it ends, not only do they believe and listen to him, listen to him and believe, but they, what's, what are they doing at the end? They are worshiping God. They so wholeheartedly believe that they have uh, dedicated their lives to God. They say, absolutely, we want to worship God. He is the real deal. And, and that's striking, isn't it? I wonder how many of the times when we began with something that we were really worrying about, after God has finished with that story in our lives or others, we worship him in response. We need to remember those times when we are worrying, when did it start out like this and what did God do? Well, I want to look at uh, four life lessons from this story. The first is, God appears to people in ordinary places. In ordinary places. I think we forget, in the ancient times, you had to go to a temple to hope to experience God. And here, you think about Abraham, he's out in the middle of the wilderness, God appears to him. Hagar, Jacob, Jacob, he's asleep on a pillow, he is a fugitive. We'll have Gideon, Ruth, Peter, he's on his day job fishing, Jesus meets him in the boat. Uh, these stories, you know, God meets us in emergency rooms, he meets us in classrooms, he meets us in coffee shops, when we do not expect it. Now, are these everyday occurrences? No, but it's amazing as we begin to share stories, how many of us have experienced some amazing God moments in our lives where God has shown up when we did not expect and it has absolutely changed our lives. Well, God also works with and through people. Sometimes with, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> ordinary people he works with. Ordinary staff, the ordinary servant, as well as imperfect people like Moses who have major failures in their life and even lifelong impediments. But none of these failures or impediments impede God. And we must not be misguided in thinking to think that these are impediments, you know, that we have, that those are impediments or obstacles to God. He made us. He knows us. If God is calling you to a task, and you say, I'm past retirement. I really can't go to India now. You say, uh, no, God. And you see the handiwork. And you say, God, I will go if you will, if you will help me carry it out. And that is the third one. When God calls, he also equips God patiently addresses Moses' honest doubts and fears, and he equips him with the promise of divine assistance and specific examples of it that are relevant to the situation and task. I find often in, in my life, maybe I go through a challenge in life, and then after I've gone through it or I'm partway through it, 
Suddenly I'm inexperienced and I realize, oh, God is wanting to leverage this for another experience or a conversation with someone else. Maybe it's a doubt that I've had and then God has begun to address that in my life and then it pops up in a conversation. Somebody else has the same kind of doubt. And now I'm able to share something with them. God, when he calls, he also equips. And he is incredibly patient and accommodating, isn't he? He really is. And yet, fourthly, God has limits. God has his limits. When it comes to Moses and Moses' objections, he does not let him delay and object endlessly. He will not allow Moses to delay this indefinitely because this is a mission that needs to happen. There are real people whose lives are on the line. And he calls for and he insists that Moses and that we make a decision, that we trust and obey, that we follow through on our commitment to him. Because you see, indecision is also a decision. For a long time in my life, when it would be a really big decision, I would just be stuck in this place of indecision. And then I realized that too is a decision, and it's often a bad decision. And we see in Moses, he had been stuck, I think, in indecision for a long time, had not circumcised his son, had not, you know, identified himself and his family fully with God. And that indecision almost cost him his life. So if God has called you to follow him, and maybe for some of you it's been baptism. Yes, I'm a believer, but you've never gone public with that. That's a decision, that indecision. And God has limits, and he doesn't want you to miss out. And so it may be a challenge that he will give you. Maybe today is that voice of God saying to you, you need to make that decision to follow me public now. And so, is there something in this story, something I need to admit? My indecision, my lack of faith? Is there something I need to believe? God, your promise is really true. Is there something I need to commit to? I invite the worship team up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we sang earlier that you are the God of the angel armies. You are the God with the power, Lord, to take on even the superpowers of this world and to defang and to de disarm them. And, Lord, we know the superpowers in our day. Lord, we pray against them. We pray against the, the destruction and oppression that are being caused in so many places in our world. And we pray that you would raise up People like Moses, like Deborah, like other leaders, Lord, often from humble and ordinary places. And Lord, you also call us to a point of decision, in whether it's calling us to, to serve, whether it's in a, in a role at church or in the community, whether it's locally or whether it's a place across the world. Lord, we want to commit ourselves to saying yes to your will and to your way. Amen.